What's up, everyone? Tyler Tambolin here, a.k.a. Toe Tag and Tambo, back for another Monday review video. I know we missed this one last week there, but uh, didn't quite have results DB up and ready to go. This week, we've got it back. We just had a crazy good tournament, but I'm going to bring in our other guest first. He's going to be joining me on this show going forward. Uh, you guys met him last week. You might have heard him on Dean's podcast or his original podcast he did with him for his interview. TJ Lasig at TJL5124. What's going on, TJ? Hey, Tambo, how's it going? Exciting day of golf yesterday. Really awesome tournament, and I'm just re really excited about the state of the PGA right now. I think we've got a lot of good golf going on. Excited to break it all down with you today. Yeah, I mean, that was amazing. The event was good. It was fast and fierce. We obviously got the tee times moved up, which I talked about on the Saturday night show when I went through pretty much round four was a uh, but it was pretty much a break even, but it was just based on having no Cantley. That really hurt me. I kind of woke up. That was the that was the only downfall to having it start that early. I know East Coast for you, I believe, West Coast for me. It's it's good for both. I think to have it early, be able to watch it, and then get your day over with, even when there is a three hole playoff, which we'll talk about. But I think the big thing for me was just waking up to see Cantley at like five under or six under with a streak and an eagle, no bogeys through that many holes. It was through six or seven holes. I was like, ah. Oh, that's probably it for the day for me. So did you play Showdown yesterday at all, or how'd your day go? I did, yeah. played some Showdown. I think about the same as you. Pretty much a break-even day. No Cantlay for me in Showdown. Had him in the full slate, but yeah, it was good. Good weekend yeah, overall. It's what it did. That's what it was. It was good for the for the regular, uh, for the classic slate. Obviously, we had uh, you know a great finish with the Morikawa comeback. Everyone had pronounced it over. I thought it was over, myself included, when JT makes that eagle and – Morikawa makes par and it's like three shot lead with three to go and then Morikawa just put the pressure on uh, the 50 foot bomb in the playoff from JT all of that uh, made for some crazy finishes before we get into this week I want to talk about and, and with all the review stuff before we get into that I do want to talk about some promotions this week I'm not sure if you guys all saw it on Twitter or not already but for anybody watching this you're going to be able to have uh, lineup HQ for PGA free this week so the the goat tiger is back you're going to be able to get on lineup HQ, see what a great tool it is, and use it. Myself and Cards will be doing a Wednesday show using lineup HQ, doing an MMA, MME pool, uh, building that up and going around sort of what some of the plays we like are, all that. And then we're also going to feature FanDuel. So more details on this to come throughout the day, throughout the week that you guys will see. But there's going to be a reason to be on there with us for the free show on Wednesday to be able to utilize lineup HQ, especially on FanDuel this week. So keep your eyes tuned for that. Uh, before we get into this week, I want to go through just to remind everyone quickly, if you go to PGA, Results DB, that's where we're getting all of this information, right? You're going back to the Thursday, you're pulling contests, and you can see everything along here of who won them all. Unfortunately, I know my name's not there. Uh, I don't see yours, TJ, but we, you know, we'll move on. It wasn't a bad week for me. How was your week overall? And then I'll talk about some of mine as I get into the Millie Maker and whatnot. Yeah, a little bit of a tough week for me overall. Certainly not not one of my best. Had a pretty good weekend. The prior one, pretty bad this past weekend, but that's just kind of the nature of it. You can't, can't expect to win every single time, but uh, excited to, to get back at it on another tournament here at the, the same course, which should be an interesting dynamic. Yeah, extremely unique this week, right? We've got a, a replay of the same course, which we never really have. We've got, uh, you know, strongest field to date by far. It's, you know, really strong. I think it's 48 of the world top 50. The only ones missing, I believe, are Fleetwood, Tommy Fleetwood, and Adam Scott. So if you look at that field, Tiger's back, like you mentioned, you know, we mentioned, and all the other stuff that goes with it, it's going to make for an exciting tournament. Uh, you know, they're letting the rough grow out. They're getting the greens baked out a little more and be fat, and they'll be faster, all that sort of stuff. So uh, definitely happy we get to jump right back into it. 
Before I bring up the Millie Maker, I want to go through that one. You know, we always talk about it. Dave Hoffman, we'll see here, is the winner. Uh, actually had a great lineup. We'll get into that in two seconds here. But just talk to me a little bit, TJ, about your process when it comes to reviewing weekly. You know, I like to look at this stuff because it, it gives me some idea, but I've talked about it in the past. You know, some of the other things I do with looking at not just the winner because, you know, whoever wins, it's kind of, you know, there's variance involved. It can be luck-based. It's, you know, you just got to put yourself in that position, then you can get lucky. We talk about that quote all the time, but what does your weekly review process look like and sort of where do you use and what do you do for yours? Sure. Yeah. So I, I would actually say that my, my review process almost starts immediately when lineups locked on Thursday, I'm going in and checking out some of the players that I respect across the industry, seeing what kind of lineup they went with, who they played that way. I'm kind of evaluating their lineup before the results even come into play to skew how I feel about it one way or the other and just see what I can learn looking at it both from a construction standpoint as well as which specific players did they pick. That's also just good information to have as you head into a weekend of showdowns, right, evaluating what, what some of the top guys are using and who they're playing. And then, yeah, when it comes to Sunday and reviewing the results, I, I typically am taking a deeper look at, at some of the higher buy-in, smaller fields, seeing which lineups had success, seeing what the, the ownership percentages looks like just because those are – kind of more along the terms of lineups that, that I would play on a little bit on the chalkier side, but I, I'm always checking out the, the Millie Maker and some of the big ones as well. Just, again, looking at what construction they use, what players they use, and seeing if there was a way that, that I could have backed myself into that logic and, and played that lineup. Yeah, two huge points there. I think you made one. The first one is review what you play. I mean, it's definitely fun to go, like you said, for you, the fun is going to look at the Millie just to see. We all will look at ownership and that sort of stuff right away. But as you mentioned, I do the exact same thing. In any of my high-dollar contests or single entry, I'm looking to see what some of the guys I respect the most or what I would call the best players in PGA DFS and what did they build, what construction did they use, what constraints, parameters, anything that I might find. And then again, like you said, sometimes you'll find a play that you're like, huh, they used Hoffman or, or they used... Chase Seifert, like that's interesting. And we'll talk about this later on. And the second point, you guys stick around for the end because what we're going to do is we are going to evaluate at the very end the 3K, which I know, TJ, you play weekly, uh, sort of a week-to-week -week basis for you. And we're only talking DraftKings here today, but I just wanted to bring that up because we'll get into your mind a little bit on lineup construction in that, the process, you know, a big winner that we had there this week and last. So that's interesting stuff. But let's get into the Millie. It's the fun one. We'll talk about it first. Uh, for, for everyone following along, you just click on the millionaire, it will take you right in to this screen here. You've got everything set up in front of you. You've got everybody, how they finished. Uh, the human Cespedes, Justin McMahon on Twitter, he had a great week uh, as far as coming second and sixth. Probably, you know, I know he won the Thunderdome, a bunch of other tournaments, so good for him. But yeah, big shout out to Dave Hoffman up top. Single bullet, right? He got it in there straight, one lineup. Lineup goes as, as this, Justin Thomas, Colin Morikawa, both in the playoff. Jason Day, I think everyone wished they went there instead of Joel Damon at the same price. Obviously, got some leverage bump, and Damon disappeared off the map. He, he had a rough week there, uh, even, even more rough than my boy Donnie Trosper. So I at least can die on that hill a little bit easier. And then we've got Poulter, who, again, you talk about a pivot here, and I'm kind of taking some of the steam out of it. I'm going to let you review it here. But, you know, that was Harold Varner was the chalk there. You go to a, you know, a guy that had, you know, had good short term was Damon and Varner, he swapped out for Day and Poulter. I do like that. You get a, an ownership leverage play. You get the stronger guys in the stronger field. And I'll ask you some questions about that in a minute when it pertains to strength of field. And then you got Sabatini and the interesting one being Hoffman. But Hoffman had been on a little bit of a run as of late, just sort of under the radar, kind of like how we've seen Danny Willett 
in the last couple events that he's played. So what do you think about the lineup at first glance and what stands out to you, TJ? So I think first from a construction standpoint, it's pretty in line with what I thought the optimal would be going into the week in terms of picking two of the top price guys, 9K and above, and then filling out with value from there. So he basically went at the very top with Justin Thomas, pretty much at the very bottom of the 9K plus range with Marikawa. Obviously, the two guys that end up in the playoffs, so the, the, the right two selections there. And then, yeah, the, the Hoffman one, I mean, you see it, 0.72% ownership. He certainly was, was not on my radar in any way, but great for him on that call. I mean, he's a guy that has shown spike weeks in the past. And I, I think another interesting thing is that, you know, you, ha- you have some guys that long-term are good golfers, yeah. but not as of late. And so it's a, it's a lineup here where you're going with a Jason Day, Ian Poulter. Like these guys are, are good golfers long-term. They're, they're not getting a buzz as of late, and it paid off for them here. Yeah, and that's also what our boy Sabatini. We talked about him a lot on Wednesday, him, and uh, yeah. I guess rightfully so. Yeah, he's there for sure. I'm going to check something real quick while we're on here. I think 97 for Horschel. Yeah, and he had the money. It doesn't matter. I mean, obviously, it wasn't optimal, but it won a million dollars. Again, congratulations. It's not about that. I was just curious because you and I did talk about Sabatini and going back to the well. You're going to play him at 8,800. You got to play him at 7,400. Uh, I know a lot of us took heat for our Billy Horschel call, and that's why I was just checking because that was one of the interesting things in this lineup for, for Dave Hoffman is he had five guys under seven and a half, give or take percent, 7.51 percent. It's like four guys, I meant to say, uh, and then a couple others at the top. So, who really cares? But it just was more to point out the overall ownership isn't always the consensus. Sometimes it's the parameters and the constraints. The segue I just mentioned, and you brought it up already, and what I was going to ask you about was about, you know, the interesting thing with the start from the break and coming back from everything from, from the coronavirus and all these restart events, the strength of field has obviously got a lot stronger. I kind of hit it a little bit, and, and spoiler alert, a little bit with Day and Poulter versus Varner and Damon. Varner and Damon definitely were popping on every model that people had out there because of their recent form and their recent results, as well as they're not terrible long-term golfers. But what had happened was you had those reasons and then all the ownership that came with them, right? They had a bunch of ownership. And you talk about these fields and the strength of field. So do you look at that more when you're building some of these lineups, not just for the Millie, but even for your own? I know we said we talk about some of that later, but you know, he, he just played better golfers. I know it sounds easy to say, just play the best plays. Day is better than Joel Damon long-term. They might have the same initials, but one has a lot more accolades when it comes down to it. And at the same price, I think the bottom line is you got Jason Day. Of course, he hasn't done well at, so people said that, but also at the same time, it was his home course, you know, Mirfield Village in Ohio, where he, where he hails from. So um, what do you do when it comes down to that? And do you, do you do it just based off ownership? Or is it because the fact that it's a double down on the strength of field the long-term ability, and the ownership. What's that for you? So I personally fell into the Joel Damon trap like I know a bunch of others did. And yeah, my goodness, that couldn't have been more dead more early on. That was, that was just a, a total disaster. But yeah, J- Jason Day wasn't really in consideration for me this week, but I think it's a great leverage spot, like you said, getting him at under 5% ownership. He's a guy that any given week can spike up. He's been... You know, there, there's been times when he's a top 10, top five golfer in the world, and that ability is always going to be there some way. So I think that on any given week, he's always going to be a riskier play just because he's Jason Day, but he's always going to have that upside. And 
I think even with one good week here, he'll still continue to come in at low ownership the rest of the way. I mean, unless he goes on a consistent yeah. run, I don't see him becoming a popular option anytime soon. Yeah, and I agree. And we'll bri- we'll briefly preview the pricing for this week that came out. I tried to predict it myself last night and was a little bit off. I forgot they've got 177k uh, milli to fill up this week, so they definitely went extremely soft, even more than usual in my opinion. But we'll see. Uh, we'll get to that. One other note was. Um, you know, you mentioned with Jason Day being risky and just as sort of trying to feed my thoughts out to the people as just, you know, thinking out of the gate is that while he is risky and doesn't have the form or the hit or the course history technically at this course, if you want to take, you know, five events or 10 events and, and call it a good sample size, kind of all we get these days. But I guess the big thing is, isn't Joel Damon still risky? Isn't Cameron Champ at the same price still risky? So that's where I'm learning and just my two cents going into these events. And this week, I mean, pretty much everyone's a strong play. So it's really more for these events that were still strong, but not as strong as something like this week, but have been much stronger than those in the past, where you've got guys like this price range, Damon, Champ, and Day, they're all risky, but Day is the much better long-term golfer. It's, yeah, you're taking the risk, but you're trying to win a million dollars. And in this case, it paid off. Uh, I do want to show off one thing here. This lineup in second, I believe, here. Yeah. Hovland, Morikawa, Woodland, Fitzpatrick, Horschel, and Poulter. 633 points. This is definitely not a toot-my-own-horn thing. This is way off the mark, but I just want to go down here and show a couple things. One, my second-best lineup. I told you about falling into the Varner trap. It's the exact same lineup as the second-place lineup with a 1v1 from Poulter, who Poulter's my guy. He won me over six figures at the Shell Houston Open when he had that crazy comeback, made that big putt at the end, and then beat Bo Hostler in the playoff. Again, it's generators and things doing it wrong, but my point is just it's funny to see that you can be that close and still be this far away at 601st place. So keep grinding. You know it's in the pool. You know it's there. I do want to show one more thing in the million, and then I'll leave it if you have anything else to talk about. For people that don't believe me about the Donnie Trosper thing, look, I played him too. Okay, 0.17. I still stand by, you know, the play being a capable millimaker play. It was 0.17% owned. What I do know is, and part of my review process, and you talked about some of it, is right away looking at what some of the other guys are, uh, you know, and then at the end of it all, going back and see what other guys scored, being a little more results-oriented. But just out of curiosity, MJ Dafu, that was the other Monday queue at the exact same price that we mentioned, scored like 87 or something or 89 and ended up being in like the top 12 in the milli if I just get the cue right. So again, a one-off means nothing now, but I, I like to go back to A, show you that I'm a man of my word. I play the guys that I say. I use about 3 or 4% of Trosper trying to get some of these unique builds in there and just get a little bit different. And this build too, look, the same guys from the, the winning line or the second place lineup, there was Hovland, Morikawa, Woodland, Fitzpatrick. And instead of using, uh, I believe it was Poulter and Horschel, I went with dropping down and going up and try and get some of that Ricky Fowler bounce back. Didn't work out because of Trosper, but I digress and we move on. Let's talk about this next, TJ. Let's talk about, uh, first off, you know, we'll talk about this $5. They brought it back, the drive to green. It's back again for this week with 100K up top, about a 97,000 person field, I believe. But last week, it was a 71,000 person field. I wasn't sure if this was a bot that won it, 530747 is the screen name, but 100, 150 lineups couple things I noticed, and then I'll get your takes. Uh, a lot more max entry guys got it done in this event, right? You look across the top, you got the guy in first, the guy in third, fourth. A hits Pat is a wonderful player. He's out there all the time near the top. I've competed with him quite a bit in the past. He's, he's got fifth. Uh, JTG10, another RG member. And then a lot of the guys down here, Beef Stew, H Potts. 
Um, how do you, do you ever play that like something like the five dollar hundred fifty max, or have you in the past? And and would you approach it any differently based on almost a hundred thousand less people than the Millie Maker? What's your thoughts on that? So I don't max enter it. I, I do throw a couple lineups into it typically. I think you can play a little bit more standard, I guess. I mean, with the Millionaire Maker being so top heavy, you've got what is it, fifty percent or? 33% all, all goes yeah, up top. It's I forget the total. From 33 three. to 45%. Yeah, you're right yeah. with that. It's quite a bit. Right. And, yeah, and I mean, you look here and it's actually less than 20% the first. So I think with the $5, while, while you're always going for the top, there's more value in having a lot of lineups that cash. Whereas in the Millionaire Maker, it's really boom or bust, all or nothing. You're going for that number one spot. So you'll probably see some more off the board stuff in the Millionaire Maker than you would in the $5 like this, just because of the payout structure and, and also the number of entrants as well. And I mean, you can see that with that top lineup, right? That, that seems like a much more attainable lineup. Like, yeah, okay. Cypher is pretty off the board. I, I actually played him in my main lineup on FanDuel just because I, right. I like to, to punt off a spot there sometimes. So, so I played him at yep. the, the minimum price on FanDuel, but I mean, I, this, I look at this lineup and say, okay, yeah, I could see myself coming up with that lineup. The, the Hoffman, Jason Day one, I just I could never see myself ending up there. So I think that's that's one difference that I would. Yeah, I mean he out. he would have won the you know five three zero seven four seven. He would have won the milli with this build, Ooh, right? It's it's six sixty seven, and it happens. I, I wonder. I'm gonna check very quickly here just to see in the milli. He wasn't in there, so maybe it's not his stakes, and that's whatever. But that's why I wondered. I mean, obviously, I think I approach it pretty similar just because of that. But like you said, I think it's. One thing to point out, and what you kind of talked about for your FanDuel, and I know Cards and I will talk on the Wednesday show a lot about it this week, is that there's a lot of different strategies on FanDuel, but you can still apply some of that theory over here. I mean, the overwhelming theme is that on FanDuel, the, pr- the pricing is softer. So you can throw a guy like Chase Seaford, who I believe was 7K over there, and then you can start fitting all the guys above 10K, which means you can get a pretty stacked lineup, assuming your guys do their job, make the cut, and you got a couple of the winners in there. Uh, or the winner, I should say, can't have a couple, but then a couple of the guys that finish in the top along with the winner up there. Now, over here, and what I like about this lineup is kind of what you said. He's applying some of the FanDuel theory. Just going as a one-off with Chase Seifert, who definitely wasn't you know that bad of a play. It was, I think it was a great play, and it turned out to pay off, but, I mean, everyone sort of knew a little something about him. They just didn't want to go there if you see 0.51%. But then look what it allowed him to get. Like you said, Justin Thomas, Morikawa, Woodland, Horschel, Poulter, all the plays that people liked and had a little bit more ownership, but it was allowed. He was allowed to change and, and be a little bit more chalky with four guys above 10% by using a 0.51% while still almost going to the full salary cap and then really blowing out the field. So, props to five three zero seven four seven. I think it's a great lineup. I think it shows that you know you can apply some of the theory from both sides. You know, it is what it is. You're never going to be down about a fifty thousand dollar payday, and you don't know when you're putting them in if it would have won the milli. You just can't be worried about that. Um, I know you don't max enter a lot, but let me ask you this question then. If you were to play like me, I play the $20 max, you know, put the three, put the 150 uh, lineups into the milli, and I'll put the 150 in this. Would you, with your style or personality, would you be more likely to dupe them or would you be more likely to run uniques and just try and take down a high prize, whether it's 50K and it would have won? Oh, well, you still came away with 50K, but you got more of your entries in play that way. But, and by saying unique guys, for those that don't know, I'm talking about running 300 different lineups, but it's still you on your account on two separate tournaments. The risk you take is like this. If it was me, if I was this guy running these lineups here 
and a different 150 in the milli, and this would have won the milli and vice versa. I would have been pretty down because I'm 950K shy of what I could have won, but I'd still be up for the week because it's a $50,000 score. So what's your take on that, TJ? I would definitely make 150 and then put it into put it in twice into each tournament personally. I don't think I could handle making making 150 in two different spots and then having one that would have been the, the milli hit and, and one that uh I mean 50k would be great, don't get me wrong, but but it's certainly not a million. So yeah, I would I would take that 150 lineup. I mean, I also just think once you get into making 300 like you're eventually you're just taking a, a massive equity drop on that, you know, the 200th through 300th lineup. So I understand any lineup could win, but my mentality would just be find the 150 that you like and, and enter them into both tournaments. Yeah, you're certainly looking to try and get an edge with the, you know, the amount of builds. So for the guys that maybe locked Brooks at the Rocket Mortgage Classic, 150 Brooks builds is pretty solid, but 300's also nice. And I know, you know, multiple people said, hey, I had like double the field on Brooks. Sorry, I'm talking about Bryson here, guys. I apologize. But for saying I doubled the field on Bryson and I still broke even or I still didn't make money. And it, it's just because there was one, a lot of people had them and then you have to get different combinations. And so I think some people like to do that. I'm kind of with you. Uh, I don't really like to risk it too far out because then what if, like you said, you kind of that feeling of walking the plank after you could have had that million dollars and you just didn't. So maybe do, you know, a different strategy as far as that goes. A uh, couple more I want to talk about. One more here especially. I want to talk about the 555. I bring it up every week. Uh, the thing about the 555 is I know it doesn't fit everybody's bankroll, but I think it's what a lot of people want to strive towards, right? If you want to have that first big hit, you know, first talking about a couple things, and maybe you can chime in on this in a second, but $9 satellites, you know, there's I think $27 satellites, $43 satellites. I get that it's not as pretty as, you know, putting your money into a $33 or a $44, but I mean, your odds in the you know two millimakers are just lottery tickets, whereas you could put them into a couple satellites or four or five satellites in this range, and try and get one of these tickets where the next week you're up against the field of you know 1,700 to in this week I think it's 2,500 or 2,200, and you can then play for 200 to 250,000 where you definitely look at this almost 100 points less than the five dollar you know in in the, what the winner had so. What's your take on just satellites in general, any range? I know you might play them at the higher stakes and talk about why. And then on using something like that as a strategy to get into this, where your odds are probably a lot higher. They are by math, but just, you know, people worry too much, I think, about field strength. And now I'm going against the big boys or girls, quote unquote. And it's not so much about that. It's more about getting your odds in the field with the big prize. So talk me through some of that stuff. I think it's something definitely worthwhile to look into. I mean, like you said, look at the top score here compared to, to what we saw in the million and the $5. It's almost 100 points difference. And look at this lineup. This is absolutely a lineup I could have built. I mean, I played Norlander in, in my main lineup. I liked Bolter. I liked, I liked all these plays. And to me, that's the thing. You, you can If you work your way up into – either by playing a satellite or maybe you play some cash games to try to build up that bankroll with the goal of, hey, once I get up $500, I'm going to take my shot in this tournament, and anyone can win it. I wouldn't get too caught up in the, the strength of field in terms of the DFS players. I mean, you can, you can only have so much of an edge. If you, you make a good lineup, you could easily win it. You see it up here. The top two guys only had one entry each, three entries for the, the other two. You're just not you're not going against as many crazy combinations as you are in those other tournaments, and it 
gives you such a higher percent chance of winning. And also like you min cash, you make 500 bucks. That's not so bad either. And right. yeah. yeah, I just think it just feels much more attainable. I mean, you look at a lineup of Cantlay, Hovland, Woodland, Horschel, Poulter, Norlander, that's a, a very makeable lineup. It's not too off the board. And that's the kind of thing that, that gets me excited and feels attainable. Yeah. So just curious quickly too, before I go into that, cause I want to talk more about this lineup for a second, but um, do you play satellites at the higher stakes to try and get into some of these bigger events or do you prefer just to buy in? It's teach their own. I just was curious on your end because I think, uh, you know, it's something I've struggled with in the past and just that's kind of the fun of having you on with me now and be able to shoot some stuff back and forth is that, you know, I, I love playing the satellites. I just don't know if I'm as good at them. And, and that tends to, you know, what I'm working on with my game. I'm trying to get better at single entry and three entry max and all that sort of stuff. But do you play satellites at all? And then what's just your general thoughts on, you know, someone who wants to get better at them or, or better at single to three max? I actually have not done a lot of satellite play in the past. So what's the typical field there? Like, it's just, I mean, depends yeah. on the buy-in, obviously, but is it just one seat that goes off? Yeah, typically it's a winner-take-all, and you're looking anywhere from, you know, 20 guys, you know, 20 folks up to, you know, 100, let's say. Right. And it's going to be somewhere around a winner-take-all, but the idea is you, it's normally one or two max. You know, that's about it. The odd time with the 100-man field, I think it's three max. But it's, it is a little bit different, on, you know, how to get after it at the top. So What's your, I guess, we, because we'll get to that in the 3K in a second. We maybe, maybe we'll hold it for two seconds, actually, because we'll talk about your strategy. I think what you do in the 3K would be very applicable to what we're talking about here. So we will pause it for two seconds. I want to talk about this lineup, but, you know, you mentioned it and ran through it. But I think the funny thing is just a couple comments on the, the points you made. Yes, there's single entry guys at the top. So you shouldn't worry about as much about that. Here's my next thing. Oriental Express, Court Jesters. Uh, M Camp B05, Schmidto, who does our, our, Roto, our Roto Grinder sports betting article. All these guys are extremely good players, and they're putting in tasteful ties. All, all these guys, they're not going really more than 3 to 10 or 15. They're not putting in, you know, 53 or 20. Even Osimo is only putting 20 in when you can max out of 53. And that's where I'm saying you don't really have to worry so much. It's, yes, it's a little bit scary that these top players have all these lineups in there, but that's why I think it's worth going after because I guess this is what I want to say about this lineup is if you look at this lineup is, okay, go to the expert survey on Roto-Grinders. We all love Patrick Cantlay. I know myself, Cards, I think you as well. We're, we're the three of us that mentioned Cantlay as one of our favorite golfers regardless of anything. Hovland, a guy that I had as a conviction play in my filter and that I know that everyone still liked for the week. It was, you know, his price was there. It seemed right. We'd seen what he's been doing tee to green. He just couldn't make any putts. Definitely fit the mold of a guy to play this week. Woodland, a couple of them, myself included, mentioned as our favorite tournament player to get in tournaments this week. Again, a couple bad rounds, but we were, we were monitoring the driver. He'd had a week of rest. Could he bounce back and do what he did at Colonial? He did. I know it was a slow start for this guy, but man, 101.15 paid off. Horschel. Like I said, we all took some heat, but I know in the ratings, we all pretty much had him. Cards, Noto, myself, I'm not even sure who else, but everyone was on Horschel. They liked him. Cards and Noto had him beside my Woodland as favorite tournament play of the week. Norlander was one of my favorite, was my favorite long shot bet of the week. And one I believe you mentioned in your value plays article at 6,500. Uh, and then Poulter, the guy that sort of fits. Now, it sucks if you end up with Varner here. I get it. It could have happened. But the idea is you could have also still had Sabatini here and probably been just fine. I think it was still very close. We just looked at that 94-ish. So he would have been very close to the same spot. So either way, you would have won six figures Who are if this was anyone but Varner. And this, you know, in B. Shammy 22's case, congratulations to them. You know, they've got the right one in there with Poulter. But I guess it just goes to show, and back to your original point, 
you definitely need a different strategy for this and you don't need it, but I'm just saying you also don't need to be as aggressive as far as the parameters go on making sure you get a 1% guy in your lineup. If it happens, it can happen. So be it. Look at Zach Johnson in the second place lineup. But mind you, Zach Johnson ended up being the lowest scoring play in this now a lot better than Max Homa who crushed me. But I guess, you know, without going in a million circles here, the idea is just that look at some of these lineups and again, just play some of the plays you like maybe get a random one-off and you've got yourself a pretty good lineup. So anything more here on the 555 before we dive into the 3K? I would just iterate that. Play, play the players that you like. I think ownership is very important, but I think that sometimes people get a little bit caught up in that, right? And we can only predict ownership so much too. Right. I mean, yeah, people are like, oh, Patrick Hanley is going to be the highest owned guy. Yeah, he was 27% owned, but it's not like he's – it's not like it's NBA where he's 60% owned. Like right. he's still only 27%. And if he's a good play and he, he played pretty horribly for three rounds and then it backdoors his way into a top 10. So just sure. pick the guys you like and, and play them. And yeah, I, I really, really like this lineup. It's something I could have seen myself landing on. Disappointed that I didn't. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the the same way. And and to make a point that you just said there, one last thing is it just a, you know I guess two last things. One would be you know I'm guilty of it myself. Look at me with Brooks or with Bryson. I keep calling him Brooks. I can't wait for the Bryson Brooks battle this week. That's that's why I'm so hyped. But um, Bryson, you know he was going to be 30% owned. He was the highest priced golfer. I think of it as like a game theory thing. But at the same time, if you look at the course with four par fives, drivable par fours, a dude that's strong enough to drive it through all the rough, and we'll we'll preview him at the end here. But I guess you know, that's my own mistake. It's something I'll learn from that you could have just differentiated elsewhere. And that's clearly what people did with Cantlay. The last point I would say, the only thing I really worry about in something like this, I don't, I don't want to say don't worry about the chalk, but I, I would try and stay off more than two over 20%. Because then you really get up there into the, you know, if you want to talk about, you know, in football, some people mention a quote unquote bust rate where there's a higher chance that one of them is going to not make it or, or bust. And like Cantlay was almost a candidate that he obviously had the great Sunday round but we knew he had it in him he just had to get it done he almost didn't even make the cut if you recall he had a, a eagle down the stretch that he needed on Friday a little bit of up and down in the last few holes and then made it through at three under I believe but yeah we'll move on I just thought that was interesting again congrats to be Shammy 22 and then the last one um, the 3k not going to spend a lot of time in the lineups a lot of the same guys we see give a special shout out in a second but the human Cespedes right up there again we talked about him winning the Thunderdome 50,000 in this uh, a couple top sixes in the Millie Maker. Osimo, love to see it. He's always up there. Mark F., great guy. Rob Kaufman, these are guys I see on Twitter all the time. Healy BJ, they're all members. Jet Black, Hoop, the man, Hoop2410, Dasberg, all these guys that we see up there, uh, you know, all the time. Good weeks for them. But got to give a special shout out to Petty Theft. Big deal here. He doesn't talk about himself. Pretty humble guy. Absolutely destroys NBA. Uh, not very active on Twitter, but he's on there if you want to give him a, a shout out. But man, the big thing on this, and I follow this stuff because I like to say what's going on in the industry. He'll never talk about it himself. He won this tournament last week for 100K. He won the $200 single entry last week for 100K. We got to pick a lineup. Everyone talks about multi-entering and all this. This is high stakes, big time money. Then he comes back this week and says, let's run it back. Wins not only first for 125K, but second. So that's more than 400K in back-to-back weeks. I'm going to shuffle quickly. The $200 single entry, you get one lineup in this, goes third place for another 20 grand and really just a few points back. It is a dupe of this lineup, but man, incredible uh, job by him to win almost half a million. I'm sure he won well over a half million when you get into all the other stuff he put these in, but just a dominant performance in those tournaments. 
Going to go back to the 3K here. We'll look at his winning lineup. We don't got to talk about specifically your lineup this week, TJ. But before we talk about your process, and we'll end there, and then with the preview of the pricing for this week, talk to me about Petty Theft's lineup here. So he's got Hideki, Morikawa, Kucher, Woodland, Day, who you already talked a little bit about, and Seifert. Interestingly enough, before I pass it over, he used a couple of the plays that we talked about and then sort of shimmied them together and then goes back to some of the long-term stuff. So what are your first thoughts just seeing that lineup as the winner? First thought is that you can see it's a little bit more balanced, right? You're not seeing Justin Thomas in here. And I think when you get higher in the buy-ins, you'll see that a lot more. Last two weekends ago with Bryson was an exception just because he was so far and away the best play, even though he was the highest priced guy. But (laughs) you you see people being, you know, starting with Hideki, down to Marikawa, two 8K guys, you'll start to see more condensed lineups. Now, he did go all the way down to, to Seaford at 6,200, and you can see. But it's also interesting, right? 1.2% owned here, which was like double what we saw him in the other tournament. So you can see that, right. that he was getting a little bit more love at the higher stakes. So you can just kind of see, see that people are looking into those plays. But I think it's a really solid lineup. You, you've got the three chalky guys, Hideki, Morikawa, Woodland, we all we all knew they would be in that 20% owned range. Kucher, I'm actually surprised Kucher came in at only 10%, but long-term form play like we talked about. Jason Day, another long-term form type of guy. And then the Seifert play, great, great call by him. He had an unbelievable weekend. And even the weekend prior, I had he was a little bit on my radar. I think he went six under in the first round and then – blew up and shot like three over to, to miss the cut by maybe one on exactly the happened. second day. But I saw, I saw some people on him last weekend. So that's what, what kind of piqued my interest and, and ended up with me landing on him on FanDuel. So yeah, I think, and I think the more you play like FanDuel or some of the showdowns, you get more comfortable with some of these lower priced guys. And I think that can become pretty important because it, it gives you a little bit of a different perspective. And again, it gives you that comfortability of knowing who some of these 6K guys are and being able to, to pull the trigger and, and put $3,000 on him. Good for him for that, but a uh, great, great line. Yeah, we'll never get inside the mind of Petty Theft. Maybe we will. I'd love to get him on a show. I think, you know, extremely sharp dude. Love to see something like this. One of the things I would say is I think, you know, without being knowing what he's thinking is the idea here looks like, you know, back to what I just said about the previous tournament. And obviously it gets crazier as you go back, let's go back to the Millie maker for a second. Not even one play at 20%. You go to the signature hole. We talked about, let's maybe not go over two because yeah, there's still 1780 in the field. And then you go here and he's got three, but again, knowing that he's sharp, knowing, you know, what his thoughts are probably is, you know, when you get a Seifert in there, you can pretty much do what you want. So if his guys were a little more balanced with Decky, Morikawa, Woodland, Seifert makes it work who fits and then starts looking at two V twos, which typically is how you're going to sort of look at a structure like this, or at least myself in, in the past, you look back to it. Like you said, those two long-term plays just look like the safety for the made cut. Definitely a possible upside ownership. That's not going to be too out there. And then look what you still get. Even as long as you get 150 points between the two of them, which he did more than that, you still get your other plays as sort of your must haves. And then when you're, other guy goes off like this down here. I mean, interestingly enough, we'll go to his second lineup. He's the other guy. Ooh, double down. Wow. Double down. Now he's got five lineups. It's maybe, again, one thing is he's got 200 grand to play with from the week before. 
I think he would have done it anyway. Like I said, I know he knows what he's doing. So that's sort of the main point. But when you got five, he's not doing it on all of them, but he's going to take a stand on a couple. And, and those he knows will propel him to the top of the board if it helps him get that six out of six through. And honestly, another point I'll make, just you know, my own knowledge and seeing it from the past and learning both the, the hard way and getting it right myself both ways is that I like to have the 1% play on the low end guy because in an example of both of his lineups here is if he gets Seifert wrong and Seifert misses another cut, you still got Matsuyama, Morikawa, who ends up being the winner, Kucher, Woodland, Day, all these big names. That's a pretty damn strong five out of six. And I'm not sure if anyone else here at the top. Yeah, right away, look. Um, Justin McMahon again here. Homa, similar to my issue in all my big lineups that cost me my upside this week. I had a pretty good week, but the upside was all lost to a one max Homa at 28 points on, on missing the cut on the number. But look at that. Again, same thing. His cheapest, well, second cheapest golfer in his case. But when you get a cheap golfer, not get through, and the rest come through for you, you can still win 50K off the single bullet for 3,000 and do, do pretty well on top of what he did the rest of the week. So I think it just goes to show that's another thing that stands out for me. Petty, that second lineup was, you know, a, a couple pivots. He had, you know, Morikawa in there still, Seifert in there still. And then it looks like he switched up. JT, Reed, Horschel, Colley. Uh, I think sharp call on Collie because that was sort of the Homa pivot. Uh, what was yeah. Homa in this? I fell Homa into Homa. Homa. Yeah. Traps. <laughs> Same thing. You know, Homa in this though was 18%. And you look at Collie still heavily owned versus that. Cause again, more sharp, you know, the sharper guys making sharper moves moved to 10%. But again, he didn't come through either. He was very close, had his run, didn't happen, but the rest pretty good read, you know, sort of fell apart, had a good thing going and, and fell back. We'll see what people do with him this week. Any other comments when it comes to just, you know, running lineups in something like this and how it pertains maybe back to my satellite example on overall build structure, roster construction, and just difference of being up against the field like this? What are your final thoughts when it comes down to it? Well, can you flip back to what JT's ownership was in the, the bigger ones? I saw he was 10% in the 3K. What was he? I just, I just feel like he was lower owned in the higher. Yeah. So, so he was 10% there. He was 12.7. Not, not that much different then. And then 15. So interestingly 15. enough is, is people were getting off him as the stakes went up. Yeah. I just think – and I guess going back to your comment on the lower-priced guys, right, I think, I think a big, it's a big call out there is that you can, you can try to sort of punt off one spot if you have a guy that you think can get through the cut at a very low salary – it puts you in a great position to have five other strong golfers. But then also, especially with these new cut rule, cut rules in the, the T65, we saw that come directly into play for the second time since the restart, right? There was a bunch of guys that if it was still T70 in ties would have made the cut that didn't make the cut here. It's really difficult to get six of six through. I think this coming week may be an exception because it's a smaller field. So I'd expect and soft pricing. So I'd expect more guys to get through the cut. So it's week dependent. But you'll see that, you know, you, you can't be scared of playing a guy that might miss the cut because most likely someone in your lineup is, is going to miss the cut. And so you got to think, okay, if I assume that I'm getting five of six, how can I get a five of six lineup that can still at least cash and, and maybe even get into a top 10 of some of these tournaments? Yeah, that's what I like the most about that. That's what I was kind of saying, you know, where he know he's thinking very safe with Matsuyama, Morikawa, and Woodland for guys that definitely should make the cut and have upside you get, you know, Seaford in there is a risk, but then your other two dudes get to be uh, Kucher and Day. Like, again, is Day risky? Yes, but he's a good pivot off the Domin chalk. And then also you got 
uh, you know, a guy like Kucher who definitely has high make the cut odds. So you're looking at, like you just said, if I'm going to end up five or six, what do I want that to look like? And you just made a strong point there and it, it tied in with what I said before. Um, yep. Not going to spend too much time here. I know that Cards and I, like I mentioned, are going to be on the free uh, show Wednesday going through FanDuel. So I'm going to pop up DraftKings. Again, I mentioned at the top of the show, I had a little bit of fun this week trying to predict the pricing. Way too many guys over 10K. I, I didn't, you know, I knew the field was only 133, but I thought that they might try and do a little something different where they space it out a bit more. They're going to stick to what they've been doing all along and just throwing like 75 guys below 7,000 and then just figure out the few up here. So pretty spaced out. We might not go through all of it. So let's just talk about the top range. That makes the video, you know, for everybody a little bit shorter and the ability. I know later on, if you guys are following along, it's free, but you can follow along the Fantasy Golf Degenerates podcast. Kenny Kim will be back on this week with me. Uh, We'll go through some more stuff with you. But I think for right now, TJ, let's just talk about this because the pricing came out and the new crowned, everyone's, uh, you know, self-crowned king, Bryson DeChambeau, at the top, 11.1K. So talk to me about Bryson and then down all the way to Morikawa at 10K. Not surprised to see Bryson coming in as the highest priced golfer. I, I think that's the correct decision by DraftKings here. And 11.1 seems like the right price for, from him. But then it, it gets pretty soft with some of these. Nine, I mean, I, I'm surprised to see Tiger's only 9K. I was expecting him to be like 10k maybe I, I don't I have no idea how to handle Tiger but I think 9k is an interesting price for him because I think if they put him at 10k everyone's gonna say oh that's an easy fade 9k that's that's a pretty good price for Tiger I think Cantlay stuck Cantlay stuck out to me as coming all the way down to 9.8k especially with the hot Sunday I could see him being a guy that that maybe gets some steam Mark Howell got the big price jump up to 10k in a stronger field now I'll be curious to see if that picks up steam or people are, are going to say that, that, I mean, to me, it feels a little high for him. John Rahm all the way down at nine, three, that's got to be the lowest we've seen him in a while. Yeah. I would think, but it's good. It's going to be, I mean, gosh, look at this list of names, How, except for Justin Rose. He's dead to me after last week, but except for him, no, 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 I mean, no, 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 everyone looks thing. great. <laughs> he crushed some God. lineups for some people, but he, yeah, yeah. I think there's some interesting ones. Like I said, I'll, I'll delve into it more later on the podcast with Kenny, but I mean, you got Brooks who I think people are still going to want to play. You got Rom, popular, 9,300. You know, Hovland, people just, he led to T to green now. I think he's the first ever Justin Ray said on Twitter as far as, you know, posting stats out. I think that uh, Victor Hovland is the first ever since, you know, tracking it back in 04 to lead three events in a row, T to green and not win or something, or maybe just in general. I got to look back at the stat. But yeah, it was pretty incredible there. No one really likes to play Webb ever, but I mean, he's, I think, vying for number one I saw this week in the world. So whether you believe in OWGR or not, it's not... You know, that predictable, but I think that at the end of the day, it's still something that's interesting. Like you said, Cantlay will definitely be popular. Now, just quickly before we end here, nobody really likes to play the, the previous week's winner. Andy came with a price bump. So I think you're right on Morikawa. DJ looks a little expensive when people are thinking I can just go down and get all these guys. So he might be a little bit overlooked. But we'll end on this. Let's just talk through these three. So you got Bryson, Justin Thomas, and Rory, and you can only pick one. What do you do? You can obviously pick more, but I'm just trying to put you on yeah, the spot. Yeah, yeah. Take, take an early stand. It's an early look. Just let's talk about this. You can only pick one. Who do you pick in that range and why? I think I might actually go with Rory here because I think he's going to be the least popular of the three, just with JT's performance last week and, and Bryson being Bryson right now. But I think that if it was three weeks ago, then Rory would clearly be the highest-priced golfer in this field. 
I think 10-7s, again, I feel like we've always seen Rory over 11K, and I still feel, I mean, I'm coming around to Bryson being the best golfer in the world, but I, I still think Rory kind of takes that title, and so maybe, and he hasn't played in like two weeks, and maybe people are off of him. And, I mean, I just I just still think Rory's a great golfer. Again, haven't looked into too much, but that'd be my gut off the top here. Yeah, I'm really stuck. That's why I wanted to ask you because it'll it'll take me some time here. I only have a yeah. few hours before I do the show with Kenny, but I think the big thing is, yeah, I'm coming around with you. I think if you, you aren't on the Bryson train yet, it might be time. I know it's you know a lot of talk's going to be around approach and you know proximity, whatever you want to talk about. But one thing that was you know noted last time, and I talked about on last week's podcast, was just a, you know in a recap of them, was you know a lot of people wanted to bring up like U.S. Open and stuff, and you just look some of those shots he hit out of the rough, he just has the power. So it might not even matter if he is in this four-inch yeah. rough that he can still get it up there. He's still been he's been getting better with the putter. He's been getting better with the around the green. He's been he's been doing stuff that, you know, for 11-1, it might just be the time. Like you said, I think JT will be popular because of that. There'll still be people that want to pivot from Bryson to Rory. And we'll, we'll see. One thing I do know, and I'll leave you with this, is that in, in softer pricing events and majors – People worry a lot more about ownership, and for whatever reason, you'll just see that it's because of the soft pricing, but it's extremely balanced. People are going to play everybody in this range, so nobody can really get – you know, I don't really see anyone here who's going to get to 35 or 30. You know, Tiger will be interesting. Cantlay, Rom, some of those guys. But when it comes to these guys at the top, I think, you know, 25 would be tough for me to see. It'd be more like 20 or 22 maybe max that I'm seeing and we're cutting hairs. So – We'll see it. We'll follow it as the week goes along. I know you've got some more content coming out. We'll be doing other shows, things like that. Anything, final thoughts? Otherwise, let the people know where they can find you. Yeah, thanks for having me on today. Excited to be doing this on a weekly basis going forward. I think this is going to be an awesome tournament coming up. I mean, it's basically a major quality field here. We've got, like you said, everyone except for Fleetwood and Adam Scott in the field. It's going to be really interesting to see some of the We've got kind of like the old guard. We've got Tiger coming back. We've got the Brysons and the JTs. We've got the, the young guys and the Morikawas and the Hovland. So really excited to see how this shakes out. And uh, it's going to be it's gonna be hard to make a lineup you don't look at and just love with all of these names. So it's yeah. going to be fun building lineups. And, yeah, I'll have my value article coming out this week. I'll also be hopping on the podcast with Dean again to break down the slate later this week. And, yeah, thanks for having me on, Tambo. Right on, man. I appreciate it. You guys know where to find me. Follow me on Twitter at Totag and Tambo. I'll have the show out later with Kenny previewing tier by tier and going more in depth on this pricing for this week. As TJ said, it's going to be a phenomenal week. We've got a lot of good guys as far as all the narratives, all the pricing, everything that you want. And like you said, every lineup's going to look good. That's how they fill the 177,000 person, $20 millimaker with all the rake and the top heavy structure. So should be a lot of fun. Tune in later this week for Cards and I as well on Wednesday for the FanDuel show. Lineup HQ. Other than that, guys, thank you and good luck.